Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. It's not many rental in um, in the in the city, and then for the for buying, and then the price is like crazy sky rocket high. And in Greater Vancouver, the benchmark price for a single family home is over one point eight million bucks. Well, we're a family of four, and we're just waiting for the market to chill out. You know, the most we could see is like a townhouse, but it's all like. So it's still pr- pretty without of our range, you know? Um, and that's even looking like Sur- um, Surrey, Langley, like all the like Abbotsford even we considered. But that's about like an hour drive. Apartments and condos go for over $700,000. Vancouver's a beautiful place to live. We've got beaches, we have mountains. It's just, it's stunning. So you're paying for that in a way, but I feel like it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, and it would be really nice in our time in our generation to be able to get a property that could be passed down later, you know, but I just don't know at this point if it's possible. Rents have gone up too. If you rent, I do not need to tell you this. An average two-bedroom apartment is going for 2000 a month. That's if you can even find one because vacancy rates are at around 1%. I'm trying to move to a new rental, so uh, it's going to cost me like most probably 2500 Can you afford that? It's hard because that's going to take more than half of our monthly salary or something. Vancouver is one of many cities in Canada in the middle of a housing affordability crisis. And this week, B.C. Premier Dave Eby floated a new plan that would mean some big changes. Well, this fall, the B.C. government plans to introduce legislation that will allow up to four units of housing on a single-family lot. If you don't have workers who can work in the coffee shop, if you don't have teachers who can work in the school, if you don't have nurses in the hospital, uh, your city's future is very much in question. Other municipalities are speaking out against the sweeping nature of the province's housing plan. It's a blunt instrument to just change all zoning everywhere all at once. Today, we're going to talk about that and more. Mike Moffat watches housing policy closely. He's an assistant professor at the Ivy Business School at Western University, and he's a senior director of policy and innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, a think tank focused on policies that grow the economy in an environmentally sustainable way. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for coming back onto Front Burner. Well, well, thank you for that kind introduction. Happy to be here. (laughs) So the big headline grabber out of this new plan is the move to allow up to four units on single-family home lots in the province of BC. So NIMBYs beware. (laughs) Explain to me how that would actually work. 
Well, there, there's still some some details uh, to be announced. So this is more of a broad picture. But the idea is that uh, you could, you know, currently on a single family lot, if you could build a single family home, uh, you know, one uh, one housing unit, as long as you conform to all of the other rules, and you don't need any kind of special approvals. If you wanted to build a duplex or triplex, two or three units, you'd have to go through a whole kind of zoning process, a rezoning process, get approvals from the municipal government. And, you know, there would often be community hearings and all those NIMBY neighbors would come out and give their opinion of it. Well, that would go away under uh, under this idea that if you wanted to build two or three units, and that could be on a, on a greenfield site or um, on infill, replacing an existing home. Now, whether or not that actually works and actually people are able to do that will will often depend on all of the other rules that go around it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are rules about how far back from the street uh, the house could be. There could be rules about parking. So we could say, okay, yeah, you can build four units, but you need to have four parking spots and that might become difficult. So whether or not this actually drives, uh, allows people to do this in in practice, not just in theory, is going to depend on all of those other rules. But I, I certainly think that this is a movement in the right direction and this could be very transformative. And and when you say, you know, all the other rules around it, is it fair for me to say that the plan that has been released thus far doesn't necessarily have all those details about parking spaces, et cetera. Yeah, it doesn't have the, those details. And as well, m- most of those rules are still municipal in nature. So it does somewhat require municipalities to sort of play ball. And that's always one of the challenges on housing policy where, you know, the, the provincial government, and that could be in Br- British Columbia, Ontario, wherever, you know, they can set these sort of high level policies, but if municipalities, you know, want to block it or want to accelerate it, they can find creative ways of of, of doing so. So it's, you know, we're, we're going to have to see a year or two years from now whether or not people are able to take advantage of this. But I, I think it's a, a first step. And if it doesn't, you know, if it turns out there isn't a lot of movement, then we could start to look at some of those other rules and say, OK, do we need to start changing those as well? I want to keep going on this track with you, but first, let's just back up for a moment. You said that you think that this can be transformative. How bad is the situation in Vancouver when it comes to housing affordability? Well, it's absolutely dire. A single detached home, you're not going to find anything under a million dollars in Vancouver. The average one-bedroom apartment runs at about $2,700 or $2,800, depending on the site you look at. So, you know, that's massively unaffordable. Um, so for a new family to afford even a one-bedroom apartment, they're, they're probably going to have to be earning next to six figures. And that's, you know, just absolutely unrealistic. So in Vancouver, you know, we've got families leaving, you know, we've got kids who can't leave their parents' basement. Mm-hmm. We have people living in very crowded, uncomfortable conditions. So it is a crisis. It's been a crisis for some time. And unfortunately, it's only been getting worse. And broaden that out to the whole country for me. H- how bad is Vancouver compared to other places? Like, is it fair to say it's the worst or is yeah. Toronto like a real close second it, year? What yeah, are we Toronto's like? a really close second. I mean, the, the difference is, again, if we go to that one bedroom apartment, the, the differences are about 100 to $150 so a month. So it's, it's, it's relatively close. And 
it's certainly much higher than other, like, let's say, cities with NHL teams. You know, it's twice as <laughs> twice as expensive as your your Calgarys, your Edmontons, your your Montreals, and, and your Winnipegs. Uh, you know, Ottawa's not quite at Toronto levels, but but overall, it's exceptionally expensive for a city of its size. So look, let's say that the province, as they want to, they want to move forward with this with this rezoning uh, legislation. Will enough people actually want to do that to their homes for this to make a dent? Well, I, I think most of the activities probably going to be more on uh, the sort of investor builder side. So you are going to see, I, I think, some homeowners try to use this, again, depending on if all those other rules work. Because you can see the attractiveness of uh, taking a home, making it larger, making it two units so grandma and grandpa can have one unit and uh, mom and dad and the kids can have another. So I do think you are going to see movement there. But I think where you're more likely to see movement is uh, a bunch of small, you know, boutique builders and that kind of thing who will look for smaller distressed properties, buy that up for the land and replace one unit uh, w- with four units. So I think, you know, again, as, as long as the, the, the other rules work, I think the economics are really attractive where you could buy a $2 million piece of land, put up four homes and sell each of them for under a million dollars and still make quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. And then who's that going to help, I guess, is, is my next question. Because, you know, certainly we've seen in this country the financialization, financialization of housing, you know, corporations coming in, buying up homes at premiums. Is that not just going to drive up the price of land and make it even harder for regular people to afford a home? Well, it will depend on how much other land is is made available on, on green fields and things like that. But but overall, that this is going to, if this works as as intended, and it actually drives a bunch of infill property, that that overall it should reduce the demand uh, for both uh, housing and, and labor uh, or housing and land. Because you're you're actually building building those units, so you probably will have isolated pockets where land goes up, but that will be offset by other areas that are now less popular. So you know this is going to have some distributional effects. I, I I think the biggest economic effect it's going to have is is creating a lot of these opportunities for again, smaller builder renovator types who all of a sudden have this new market that they can tap into, which a lot larger guys probably aren't going to want to touch just because they, they want to have scale. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of two or three or four person companies who would want to buy up these ex- uh, existing homes, renovate them, put in additional units. I think they're going to do very well by this, or at least they could. Yeah. Would it create, in theory, the right kind of housing stock, though? Because you you mentioned, let's say, in theory, like a small boutique builder buys the land for two million bucks and then puts up four units and sells them each for a million bucks. That's that's still really expensive, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it it, it is going to act as a drag again if it works as intended. That you won't because you're getting more supply on the market. You you should see the, those home prices, which or rents, go up at a slower rate. So Vancouver rents are up year over year, and this could help drive down that growth. But it's not going to create sort of affordability. And I think it's important to recognize that we have two housing crises working in parallel. One is just a lack of affordable housing. 
And this is probably not going to address that. I, I think there's a lot of housing that the market simply cannot build and make a profit. Mm-hmm. And there you have a role for, for governments and nonprofits and social builders. But you also have the second crisis of just housing affordability, where, where people with good middle class and then sometimes middle upper class jobs, they still can't afford a home or find a home. This is going to help that side of the market, not so much the uh, affordable housing side. Right. They're now looking at something that's a million as opposed to 1.7 million and maybe... Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. it. And or and there's big environmental benefits here as well that if you have the, those people who have, you know have a million dollars to you know can qualify for that size of mortgage right now they are buying you know 45 60 minutes east and then driving into the mm-hmm. into the city whereas now you've given them an option that that's closer to tr- work closer to transit they don't have to drive everywhere so i think a lot of the benefits here are more so environmental and stopping sprawl because again you you can build this density in a, in a way that uh, you couldn't before you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I understand other cities have tried this blanket rezoning in Portland, Oregon, right? Uh, New Zealand. Well, not cities, but New Zealand. And so what have we learned? Yeah, so it's worked particularly well in New Zealand. New Zealand had one of the worst real estate markets in terms of affordability. And uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's still not an affordable place, but we've seen, you know, supply, uh, the rate of buildings double, and we've seen this sort of downward pressure on prices. And one of the, the sort of policies that, that BC has announced here is the ability to build more density near transit lines. But they haven't specified, okay, well, how much density, how near a transit line. Uh, One of the things that New Zealand did that I think British Columbia should look at is their rules are you're allowed to build up to six stories, so six-story mid-rise apartment, anywhere within a one-kilometer radius of of a major transit stop. If Vancouver did something like that, that could be hugely transformative. Uh, it might also be politically contentious, so it's a matter of how much political uh, capital and uh, political courage the provincial government has. But something like that could be very transformative. The the government here, the BC government, has la- laid the groundwork for that with the sort of this kind of vague announcement, and then we'll have to see. Okay, well, once the details come out, how aggressive are they willing to be? Put aside for a moment all the potential pitfalls here, like the issues with different levels of government, how complicated this can get. Like, can you just take me on a tour of a neighborhood that you want to see that actually got stuff done to help make housing more affordable in one of our major cities, be it Toronto near a subway stop or Vancouver near transit? Like, what does it look like? What does this neighborhood look like? 
Well, actually, I think the best way to answer this question, kind of ironically, is, is to go to a neighborhood from 100 or 120 years ago. <laughs> where So it, it's kind of you know a back to the future kind of thing where you, you have a mix of housing types, where you, you have uh, six-story uh, apartments near uh, duplexes, and you, you have walkable neighborhoods where you can, uh, you, you can get your groceries, you can uh, walk the kids to school and that kind of thing. So you know, we have this whole movement across the globe called 15-minute cities, uh, which, is, which is just basically this idea that you, you can build up density, build up different housing forms, create walkable neighborhoods with, with parks and schools and other amenities close by so you're not having to, to load up the kids uh, in the minivan all the time. You can, you know, sometimes you'll have to. Sometimes you, you want to go to a different city, but, you know, you at least have that choice. So I think that's what that looks like. And again, that's the real irony of this, that the future, if we get it right, looks like kind of how we build the houses back in like World War One. Huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit ironic. Earlier when we were talking, you painted like really quite a dire picture of how unaffordable things are. And looking at this plan put forward by the BC provincial government. It includes other things like a flipping tax and other initiatives. I've I've heard people say that it's one of the best plans they've seen, and yet it feels so far away from what you're talking about right now. And is is that like a fair characterization? I think that is a a fair assessment, that this probably is a a best-in-class plan, at least sort of Anglo-Canada. I would say Quebec has always been, Montreal has always been better. At, uh, at building these kind of uh, mixed uh, mixed communities. But in sort of English-speaking Canada, I would say that that this uh, at least appears that it will be a best-in-class plan. But you're absolutely right that it, it by itself is not necessarily going to create those sort of 15-minute neighborhoods that it describes. So there's, there's more work to be done. Um, you know, and I would say in, in defense of the BC government, it, it's hard to do all of these things at, at once, that there's a need to try a few things, see what works and see what doesn't, and then sort of, uh, then sort of course corrects. Do we have that time, though? I guess what happens to our cities in the meantime and the people who live there and... Yeah, and that's uh, that is a a big big challenge. So you know, if you look at, uh, I'm going to bring it to tr- Toronto. If we look at, at Toronto, we lost almost a hundred thousand people. Just so that's gross, not net, but moving out of the the city of Toronto to other parts of Ontario and Canada. And it's a lot of sort of young families that, you know, it's gotten to the point where your Toronto's, your Vancouver's and so on, you just can't raise kids or or, or afford to raise children, or at least it's it's very difficult. So I think you do lose that vibrancy. And I think one of my biggest concerns is if we don't move fast on on this and and far enough on this, that we're going to create cities without children. And we, you know, we can point to places around the world where this has happened, where, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area, that's starting to happen. Um, You know, there's few kids and the few kids who are there oftentimes can't find teachers because teachers can't afford to live in Silicon Valley. So, you know, there are are warning signs out there. There are some real challenges. And I I do really wish we did have more of a a sense of urgency than we do. What's the number of new homes that we need in this 
country? Like, like, can you just put a number on it for me? So, you know, the, the low estimates say that we need to double what we're doing and the high estimates seem to say that we need to triple what we're doing. And, and, and we're seeing that in provinces as well, that the Ontario government has committed to basically doubling home building over the next decade relative to the previous decade. So that's, that's the scope of the challenge that, uh, you know, this is not just, okay, an extra home here or there. Like this is, uh, this is going to take a wartime-like effort if, if we're going to create affordability anytime soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just fair to say that wartime-like effort is not happening anywhere right now. Not, not at the scale that, that we need. Uh, absolutely not. Um, and, you know, we've seen both the federal and provincial governments in, in Ontario be criticized of that, that, you know, they, they make housing announcements saying, again, 3.5 million uh, over 10 years, 1.5 million in Ontario over 10 years. And then you look at housing forecasts uh, for housing starts, and it's barely half of that. So absolutely, this, you know, we have a lot of good programs out there across provinces, across the federal government, but they're all off by an order of magnitude. Like if we could take everything that we're doing and just stick a zero on the end of it, that would be fantastic. But we're not quite there yet. The other thing I want to ask you about is what the federal government is doing. So we're seeing policies from the federal government that have made it, or they're trying to make it easier for people to buy a home, to take on more debt, right? I, I think the latest is that you can contribute more money to your R- RSP, right? So you can take it out tax-free. I think it's up to $40,000 now to put down on a home. And is that helping or hurting yeah, I, I was I would say it's actually actively harmful. So I get I I get the idea that okay, well houses are expensive, so so help first time home buyers save money. But what happens is that why houses are expensive in the first place is that there's so few of them. So basically, giving people more money or allowing people to say more just you know increases the num- the the number of green pieces of paper chasing the same number of homes. So it would be like like playing Monopoly and just giving everybody 10 times the amount of money. That doesn't change the number of properties on the board. What that does is whenever a property comes out for auction, we're going to just outbid each other far, far more than we otherwise would have. So all of these sort of demand side instruments, and again, I, I get why they're popular politically. You know, this government does it. The, the previous federal government did it as well. But I would argue that they're at, at best neutral and at worst actively harmful. And I would like to see that money redirected to building social housing and and addressing the supply side of the equation rather than trying to boost demand. Mm-hmm. And I guess just the final question I had for you today, I know we've talked about some initiatives like building social housing, rezoning, you know, working on these 15-minute cities. Like if you were in charge here – of building more housing and you didn't have all of these, you know, bureaucratic red tape nightmares to deal with. What's the first thing that you would do tomorrow? Okay, so this this is my this is my interview as is, is, uh, federal housing czar. Yes, okay. yeah, you're like the guy. You got you got you got nothing in your way. Yeah, no, I got no, no, nothing no. in my way. I can I can kind of do uh, do what I want. Yeah. Okay, 
first thing that that's going to happen is uh, we have um, a lot of our housing issues in, in this country. Our population of students, particularly international students, has risen, but we're not building student residences. We could change that today. You know, if we get more student residences built at our universities and colleges, that not only helps those students, but that eases some of the rental pressures off of uh, off of other communities. That's the first thing I would do. The second thing is um, we need to build we need to build more apartments. Back in the 1960s, we had the same issue, and the government put in a number of tax provisions that that made it attractive for investors to build n- new housing units. So all of those big gray cement apartment blocks, which are kind of ugly, but they're very very useful because they house a lot of people, those were built in part thanks to those those provisions. So I think what we need to do because you mentioned financialization, which is a, there's a lot of different ways to, to describe that, but part of financialization is just international and other investors buying up existing properties. We can actually tweak the tax code to say, okay, instead of chasing that money, trying to chase that money away, why don't we redirect that money into building new units? I think the third thing we need to do is build more social housing. There is, uh, there's parts of the market that just, you know, that the, the, the free market is not going to be able to handle. It's just, uh, you're never going to be able to turn a profit on it. So, you know, we need to accelerate these programs and we need to find creative ways of, of doing that. So in Hong Kong, the, uh, the, the subway authority is actually one of the largest property builders because what they do, they put in a subway station, they build an apartment building right on top of that, uh, it actually helps subsidize transit, but it creates somewhere to people for people to live. And you know, if you have it's your sort of first job, uh, and you can live right above a, a subway station, kind of stumble out of bed and go go to work in the morning. That's an attractive thing. So when we are building so many, uh, you know, things like like transit stations, subway stations, that kind of thing. Let's think about how we can use that to uh, to address the the housing side. So it could be on top, it could be sort of around, but tr- create these transit oriented communities, but do so in a way that that is affordable, particularly to, to people starting out and, and seniors as well. So I think those would be the the three things that I would look at: building student housing tax reform, and uh, building more social housing, particularly social housing near transit lines. You do those three things, this is going to get us a lot closer to that 3.5 or 1.5 million target. All right, uh, Mike Moffat, Imaginary Housing Czar, it's very nice to dream dream with you a little bit. Uh, thank you. Thank well, you very much. Well, 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 thank you for allowing me to uh, give this job interview pitch. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I hope the governor general or somebody is, uh, is listening to this. You know where to find me. <laughs> So before we go today, as we were recording this conversation, authorities in Vancouver were moving into the city's downtown east side, where people have been living in tents and makeshift structures and cleared them. Many in the area struggle with addiction and mental health issues. One of our producers was down there speaking to people as this was happening. And we're working on a story about the larger reaction to both the downtown east side and tensions in cities across the country. Tensions that revolve around a lack of mental health care and more attention placed on violence and crime. That's all for today. I'm Jamie Poisson, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.